Hello, and welcome to another episode of Bitcoin in Asia from Bitcoin Magazine. I'm John Riggins, and our guest this week is Darshan Bathija, founder and CEO of Bank of Hodlers, an asset-backed lending and borrowing platform that I think we'll be hearing a lot more of in the future. Uh, the company runs out of Singapore, and Darshan and most of his team are currently working out of India. Darshan gives great insight into the lending and borrowing markets for retail and, and institutions in their different geographies, from Southeast Asia to Europe and the Americas. He also goes deep on the retail banking sector and monetary policy in India, uh, and what his long-term vision is for a Bitcoin-first bank. It's an interesting conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. Darshan, great to talk to you. Welcome to the show. Oh, the pleasure is all mine. Thanks for having me. <laughs> uh, very gracious uh, intro there. As, as for more of an intro for yourself also, uh, for those who don't quite know you yet, uh, can you give a brief background of uh, kind of some of your work history, where you've been in India so far? Absolutely. So I'm Darshan, one of the co-founders of the Bank of Hodlers. Before we decided to start in the crypto lending space, I have a background in lending myself where um, I worked for a, a private equity com, uh, banking company called Piramal Capital, where we did asset-backed loans in the real estate space, and post which I looked at growth for a Series A funded startup out of Bangalore in India. Yeah, awesome. Uh, and so got your start with some lending. Now you're uh, kind of back into that space on the Bitcoin side. Uh, can you kind of, I guess, intro Bank of Holders, talk about why you founded it? Uh, when you did and kind of your intro entrance into Bitcoin? Absolutely. So when I was at Piramal Capital um, looking at facilitating loans with real estate, I always saw capital being uh, an influencer of positive change. But the second we facilitated those uh, lines of credit into residential real estate, I noticed that cost of capital was factoring in to be about a third of cost of housing. And mm. at the time, this was 2016, um, the unaffordability of housing in uh, tier one cities in India was only increasing. So um, I didn't think that's what capital was supposed to be doing in, the real, uh, in any market. It was supposed to be an enabler, not uh, increasing uh, uh, the unaffordability of uh, probably the, the biggest purchase of everybody's lives. Um, mm -hmm. So I decided to step away from finance, even though I worked for years at a stretch to get in. And uh, I, I joined a startup where I looked at growth, all the while closely monitoring where disruption in finance and mm -hmm. banking was really happening. That's when I discovered uh, Bitcoin for the first time. This was late 2016. And uh, when I was sitting out of India, I tried to bank with it because I was absolutely blown away by um, how genuinely different it is and how customer centric the instrument is. So, uh, and, and my God, was there a gap in terms of uh, uh, promise of what it could do and acceptance, especially in a country like India. Uh, mm. That's when I, I decided that uh, what Bitcoin stands for is too important for me to sit on the side of. And uh, I decided to quit that startup and do a deep dive on uh, where is it that I could play a small role in. And uh, I did a deep dive on um, why most people use a bank today. And I realized that there are three primary things that a bank does for most people. One is safely store their capital. The next is make their capital easy and instantaneously usable. And the third is if the capital is not being used, it needs to grow in some shape or form. So storage, uh, payments and credit. 
Uh, storage is done through your bank account. Payments is done through your wire transfers and your cards. And the system of credit on one side is a yield. And on the other side is done in the form of a dynamic line of credit, a credit card or, or your access to a loan in some shape or form. What crypto did on the protocol level itself was one and two uh, in a decentralized way, which was phenomenal. Um, and, and that's when uh, I knew that there needed a system of credit to be built over this. Um, and when we decided to start up, we had two options, either commit to uh, a particular blockchain and be decentralized from day one or be blockchain neutral, look at the market cap and serve each token uh, in a very unbiased way. But the trade-off would be decentralizing over time. And the finance person in me could not leave uh, the op- opportunity of Bitcoin uh, off it. So I, d- I don't think the the wrapping and its equivalent solution did justice to it. Um, mm. So that's why we decided to be a custodian. And um, we're closely looking at how to decentralize over time. But at the moment, we're a custodian. And uh, yeah, that's worked out pretty well. Uh, our, our mid to long term goal has been enabling retail banking with crypto at the center. Um, and the reason why we're keeping crypto at the center is we, we, we want to build the best bank that's ever existed. And uh, I think Bitcoin is the best instrument that's ever existed to facilitate banking. And that's why crypto is at the center of everything. So when you're starting, so it's, first, it's interesting that you're working in finance and, and kind of wanted to knew you wanted to do kind of something in the startup side of things. Uh, and joined a successful startup to kind of get your feet wet, learn uh, kind of from the inside, and then found Bitcoin and jumped into it full time. I guess talk a little bit about your structure in the first place, kind of the the business model that you came out with first, and then kind of start to go into how it's developed over the last couple of years. Yeah, so the the clarity around starting up was not a function of um, external forces at all. It was very introspective in the sense that I knew I wanted to create positive impact. Um, in the banking space, because I think um, banking and the way it's approached by um, the incumbents is very zero-sum in nature. I didn't like that. I saw that in the absolute elite version of uh, capital allocation. And I knew the, the the broader and more mass market I looked at the instruments uh, and the companies, the worse it was getting. Uh, there's a significant misalignment of incentives. And um, I think given that the the opportunity of finance doing doing finance right uh, is positive sum i don't i don't believe it's zero sum and 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 um and we we try to approach banking with uh, with that perspective so it was very introspective on um, okay if we are to redesign banking with the internet agent with uh, knowing that we can be truly customer centric and decentralized from the get go what would that look like and that's when we, lent, uh, we we ended up at building the the system of credit, um, and and from a re- we didn't really think about regulations at the beginning because uh, when when I decided to to start there was absolutely no clarity on, on a regulatory standpoint. This was 2016, 2017, so it was the it, it was the the ultra hype cycle that was going on. People were doing yeah. ICOs um, left, right, and center. Um, the reason why we didn't do a token sale is because we we knew um, in looking back that the second we had a token, it would interfere with the experience of the product. And that was mm-hmm. uh, something that uh, we didn't want to compromise uh, with at all. Because if I hold Bitcoin, for example, I only want to get my yield in Bitcoin. Why would I want to get my yield in an ICO token or anything else? 
Um, mm-hmm. And that's what we're about. We enable the highest possible yield in the same kind. Um, so th- that's just a little bit of perspective. But coming back to your uh, earlier question around regulation, um, regulation tends to trail innovation. We've seen that with uh, the ride-hailing businesses across different jurisdictions. We saw that with uh, uh, with multiple startups in uh, in Silicon Valley and even in India for that matter. And we knew as long as we were doing right by the consumer, we kept them at the center of everything. Uh, regulatory clarity would come eventually. And the intent is for us to make sure that we are in this for the long haul. So whenever there is regulatory clarity, we would register. But we, we decided to start up when India closed down as a market opportunity. There was the banking ban from the Reserve Bank of India, which is the equivalent of the Federal Reserve. So when we looked at structuring our company, we, we, decided, we, we did a deep dive on what are the more progressive banking jurisdictions, and we narrowed it down to Singapore. Oh, interesting. Okay. Uh, so the, uh, we kind of take us through kind of that uh, entity structure then and, and your customers uh, that you serve now. Is it uh, kind of who is your customer base? Is it in India? And this is kind of a workaround uh, as from an entity structure. And then there's also kind of a peer-to-peer aspect that uh, makes it, you know, made it kind of tenable uh, within India for the last couple of years before some of the recent changes. So from the very beginning, we knew we were going to be a global company. Mm-hmm. So we structured it such that um, as long as we're looking at KFC and EMR, we could onboard users irrespective of the jurisdiction they were from. Um, gotcha. So at the moment, our distribution is about 30% from the EEA, 20% from the US, and the rest from uh, Southeast Asia. India mm-hmm. is an opportunity only really opened up for us since the banking ban was reversed by the judicial system in India. So that was in March, 2020. Um, and it was a very positive uh, upside for us. We, we didn't think that was going to happen. Um, and um, as long as there's regulatory clarity and the consumers value the underlying instrument, I think we're, we're, in, a, uh, we're in a business that's going to thrive. But I'm, I'm, I have to say that uh, I'm not sure on how things are going to pan out over the next nine months or so. I'm personally mm. excited about the opportunity given uh, where we are as an economy, how the local currency is weakening. It's inflated in the range of about 15% in the last 12 months. Um, but the mm. regulator is pretty uh, it's pretty closed down. It's not as open a banking nation as you would uh, put Singapore or the UK or the US for that matter. So mm. um, it's uh, I guess we'll have to wait and see how this pans out um, from from that standpoint. But uh, we've approached this from a global uh, from uh, from a global perspective from day one. Got it. Out of Singapore. Before we get more to the business and and uh, kind of the uh, you know region specific stuff that you deal with in Southeast Asia and, and Europe and the U.S. on the India side, fifteen uh, percent over the last twelve months is is pretty significant. What's kind of the mood around that in India? Is is there a flight to uh, is that one of the reasons that kind of some of this financing around real estate is the way it is? Is there a flight to safety on the real estate side? India has kind of an interesting relationship with gold over over uh, you know the long term. Can, can you dive into that a little bit? So the way so India is a very uh, saving first economy. We have grown up traditionally with a very low average income versus the the West. So. Uh, Whatever wealth, the majority of the wealth um, we we end up making, we save it uh, in in some shape or form. Uh, if you look at uh, the the mental construct around owning a house, it's it's very socially supported. 
So uh, mm-hmm. a lot of people, why that's one of, that's the biggest purchase any, most people make. And it's, it's a significant status symbol um, in India. Additionally, gold is probably, I think in, outside of the federal reserve, I think India as an economy is the uh, largest purchaser of gold anywhere in the world. And that's mm-hmm. because um, we have that saving uh, mentality again. And the way we look at, uh, if, if we look at the, the, the finance industry, uh, getting exposure uh, and hedging against INR is directly pretty difficult because of the restrictions around capital movement. Um, mm-hmm. But traditionally, US, uh, the US dollar has always been pegged against gold. And there have never been caps for Indians to, to purchase gold, both in terms of cash and uh, in terms of wire transfers. Um, so that how the people in India look at hedging against the inflation, uh, the, the inflation of the currency is typically by getting exposure in gold. Um, mm. and, and that's how we get indirect exposure to the dollar as well. And mm. uh, I, I would say over the last maybe two years or so, real estate has uh, not proven to be the most prudent investment, especially post-COVID, right? I mean, tier one cities, uh, people are migrating out of there. Vacancies have gone up both, both on the commercial and, and residential side. And gold is at its all-time high. It, tra- it always trades at a premium in India as well. So we, the, both the educated and uh, I would say conservative uh, investor in India treats investment in gold as one of the most safest, uh, I would say, uh, asset classes to get exposure in. And that's why I believe if, let's say, the the regulatory uncertainty uh, actually ends up ironing out, Bitcoin is going to be uh, a very attractive uh, opportunity mm. uh, for the 1.4 billion people in India. And then, yeah, so that, that all, that all, thanks for kind of laying all that out. And then the, the retail banking ex- experience, uh, uh, yeah. what, what's, what's, what is it, what's kind of the infrastructure like for, I guess, just first from a retail banking perspective, and then from the perspective of like a startup founder, uh, the infrastructure of raising money and, and uh, kind of financing, whether that's VC or traditional loans, what does that look like? So retail banking in India, given that we are a tech, very engineering enabled country, um, has been pretty tech friendly, but from um, a broader health standpoint, I mean, a bank is really, uh, the success of a bank is a function of what are the, what's the ratio of their non-performing assets, irrespective of how how big their loan book is, uh, because that's their bread and butter. Um, And in the last 12 months, two major banks in India have failed. Uh, and, and the way banking all over the world, not only in India, has been is the upside of banking has been privatized and the downside has been socialized. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we saw this uh, in the last 12 months as well, where uh, the Yes Bank, which was the fourth largest bank in India, was actually uh, bought out because of the significant defaults that they had uh, um, and they couldn't maintain the capital reserve. So the government actually came in, forced a a buyout. And um, well, in that month, I think the Indian rupee inflated by about 7%. So interesting. uh, Yeah. It's, it's, it's very unfortunate that, that we, we look at it this way, but just from a tech standpoint, 
it's uh, it's pretty friendly. Payments are instant or close to instant. It's not like your wire transfer or ACH where it it takes a while. Uh, Thirty minutes or under, irrespective of the uh, uh, the, the without any caps. Uh, the fees per transaction are in the range of about uh, either free or up to eight cents per transaction. So it's very cheap to move money mm-hmm. locally. It's extremely difficult to move money out. And from a, a, a funding perspective, given the costs associated with getting companies out of the ground in India, uh, their engineers tend to be about three to five times cheaper than the West. Um, um, I would say if you were a traditional fintech, your odds of getting funded are um, extremely high uh, because people understand money here, and mm. uh, which also meant there, there were B, B-class entrepreneurs getting funded. Uh, but if you were a crypto company sitting out of India, um, my God, was it an uphill battle uh, for anybody? And, and and that's why if you look at the best crypto companies, even in India right now, are serving the Indian market. They mm-hmm. have raised from either the US or Singapore. Yeah, there has there has been kind of an uptick. It seems like in the last four months or so of of funding going into India. So it's it's becoming a hotter market. Is uh, yeah, that's interesting. You know, and, and Yes Bank was was kind of wild to see from the outside because they probably did. Um, you know, they're, I guess they're a newer bank and they probably did the most kind of, uh, you know, marketing themselves outside of India, even as, as kind of this, uh, you know, you know, new form of bank, uh, you know, tech, tech focused. Uh, and so, you know, would see those guys around kind of Southeast Asia and, and places. And it, it was kind of surprising to see, see it blow up the way it did. And 7%, you know, and, and, uh, you know, inflation is kind of the definition there of socializing the losses. I mean, that's pretty wild to see that right off the bat. Um, and so, so for y'all, so, uh, you know, you mentioned kind of the aspect of, uh, you know, engineers in India, uh, maybe a little bit cheaper than out in the West. What's kind of, how did you think about the structure of the team? You set up an entity in Singapore. What's, what's the makeup of the team look like and geography and uh, I guess uh, kind of what, what you've set up there? So the team um, is pretty small right now. We are seven people in total, six in product, and I handle everything else, including customer support. <laughs> So if you come to the platform and there's anything, we have a one-click support. If you've deposited over $100, you get a direct line where you, in a click of a button, there's a two-way outgoing call. And the other call, the, the other side of the phone is going to be me helping you through whatever <laughs> it is that, that you, that you uh, typically uh, would require support for. And uh, yeah, we're seven of us. Uh, I, all The six who are in products sit out of Bangalore. I tend to shuttle between Singapore and Bangalore. And mm-hmm. since COVID, I've been in India. But the yeah. mid to long term intent is for me to permanently be out of uh, Singapore. That's going to happen very yeah. soon. Take us through kind of the current state of the business, product offerings. What are you doing now? And what do you see for the, the rest of this year? Yeah. So I think, um, okay, what we do now is pretty simple. If you are used to working with a crypto wallet, we have a, an automatic yield generating crypto wallet. So instead of you keeping your funds in, um, I mean, you, you are taking a trade-off of custodian or custody wallet versus a non-custodial wallet, full disclosure. Mm-hmm. But for that risk, instead of it sitting in an exchange, what you can do here is get paid out at uh, noon UTC every Monday and your funds get compounded on one side. So it's uh, aggregation of retail liquidity from a business standpoint and from a user's or a retail user's standpoint. It is a wallet that pays you a phenomenal yield in the token that you've actually deposited. No nonsense, no disruption, whatever that is. 
And on the upside, uh, we generate that yield by working closely with uh, custodians and institutional folks who are looking to take positions in the market. And they, uh, they pay a, a slightly higher yield. We, keep, uh, uh, we have a net interest margin that we, we maintain. And uh, uh, yeah, that's where the business is right now. Um, our, our goal, we, we see um, if there are funds kept in a hot wallet or a custodian wallet, we think it's eventually going to end up in some system of credit. And um, the yield is going to be a feature. It's not going to be uh, something people use a standalone platform for. Um, because if you are taking counterparty risk, you need to be compensated for that risk. And that compensation is going to come in the form of a yield. Um, and like, if I were to close my eyes and say, what's the ideal crypto platform? It is one that pays me irrespective of what I do, given I'm taking, given that I'm keeping it in a hot wallet and I have the capability to trade with it, with the deepest liquidity. And if, if let's say there is a counterparty who um, doesn't accept Bitcoin, for whatever reason, Bitcoin does have a dependency of network effects, right? Um, I should be able to make that transaction if I want to bank with it. So that's the experience we're going for. And I'm very happy to tell you that uh, we have a release uh, coming up very soon where we have a unified wallet that pays you yield, pays you the, the highest yield in the market, irrespective of uh, what what token and what, what is it that you do, without with the ability to trade with uh, Binance's liquidity uh, at absolutely no management. So in one click, you can ad- enter the pro trading experience and you can take positions and uh, without, uh, you, you don't have to pick and choose, okay, 30% of my allocation in a, a lending platform, 20% in a highly liquid uh, exchange so that I can take positions in the market. It's no compromise. But what we're trying to achieve here is um, issue a bank account, issue a card, try to get... Uh, Try to make payments with the underlying seamless, which means uh, integrating with closed network distribution net uh, products such as Visa, Mastercard, uh, Venmo, possibly in the US, Paytm mm-hmm. in India, Carousel, or Gojek in in Southeast Asia. Which means, uh, and that experience would look like I bank with Bitcoin. Uh, maybe you don't you don't accept it for whatever reason. You probably don't know. You don't know about it. Um, I capture your Venmo handle. I make a $100 payment. It's settled with me in Bitcoin and you receive $100 uh, seamlessly. You don't know that I paid with Bitcoin. And flip the equation uh, on the other side, you pay me $100 and I just receive it in Bitcoin. So building in that kind of an experience is what we're going to do to solve for payments and uh, issuing an account to ensure that uh, your bank of orders account can become your primary banking option. So making crypto yeah. spendable, uh, both in, in terms of sending it and receiving it. And um, uh, think of what Revolut did in, in the UK, uh, where uh, fiat is at the center and there happens to be a, a Bitcoin wallet on the side. Flip that equation around. So crypto is going to be at the center and you can have a fiat wallet, uh, a fiat bank account on the side. If, if in case you are, uh, if you want to receive your salary or you want to make a payment on, on that front. So that's that's what we're going to build over the span of five years across multiple jurisdictions. Okay, very interesting. Uh, and I guess you mentioned the kind of Binance partnership uh, there, which is interesting. Uh, how are you thinking about kind of your partnership strategy and, and any other kind of integrations that you have that are, are worth uh, kind of mentioning? Um, so we have a bunch of people who are using our APIs right now. Um, mm-hmm. I should be able to declare that uh, pretty soon, uh, but I would, I would 
just give me a little time. Maybe I can get back <laughs> sure. to you on that. Yeah. Uh, but the way we look at the integrations are very focused on how is it going to add up to delighting every user on our platform. And um, if that, if, if it enables something on the platform, that's when we take it forward because that's what we're about. We're about uh, delighting the users who, who end up signing on our, on, on our platform. So if, if that means integrating with the deepest liquidity pool to, uh, to take a position in the market, we're going to, uh, we're going to look at it very agnostically and pick uh, partners uh, who have the deepest liquidity pool, both from a crypto to crypto and a crypto to fiat standpoint, we're never going to be an order book company because I believe that problem is solved for uh, where we're, we're possibly going to route these transactions to there. And um, sorry, you'll, ne- you'll never be a what company? We're not, we're not going to be building our own order book. We're not going to be an exchange. Gotcha. Yeah. So we'll, we'll complement what exchanges have to offer across jurisdictions. And I think given that we would be routing orders to them, uh, it, we are a valuable partner to them and uh, we could possibly look at enabling a system of credit within their products as well, which increases yeah, our liquidity. And then uh, on the, on the fundraising side, are y'all bootstrapped? Have you raised uh, outside funding? Yeah, we've raised, we've raised a seed round of about $500,000 till date. We raised this uh, mid last year. We're smack in the middle of a, a round right now. I, I, okay. I hope I, uh, I hope we're going to be making an announcement very soon. Um, and I have to say that these are uh, capital that we're raising from right now uh, is is from extremely good crypto investors. So uh, yeah. we're, we're very excited about uh, who we're going to be working with very closely. Moving very forward. cool. I would, would guess uh, you might have some exchanges in there. Uh, you're talking about big names. Well, uh, looking forward to that update uh, when it comes. Uh, and then, I mean, on that fundraising side, you've raised 500K so far on a seed round. Uh, you know, you've, you've kind of demonstrated this growth uh, over multiple years. When you look at the fundraising that some of kind of the companies in your sort of sector, the BlockFi's, the, you know, matrix ports of the world, uh, some of their fundraise, fundraisers uh, would imagine that would be interesting to see what, what y'all kind of come out with. How do you kind of think about that landscape of your kind of competition and where it's headed or trends there? So I think there are a couple of companies that, that have done a phenomenal job in validating the, the need and the market. Um, yeah. I believe that the bar, it's only day one for the market. I, I don't think, um, I think there's a, a significant upside opportunity, both from a product and, a, and, uh, and a business opportunity standpoint. And uh, yeah, I think, I think we're at 2013, 2014, equivalent of what you, what we would see in the exchange days that's yeah. where we are in the in the c5 space especially so mm-hmm. the upside opportunity is huge and given that we are a tech first company that happens to understand finance versus some of the other companies that i think are finance first companies that uh, happen to be dabbling in tech um, I, I like our position i think yeah um, if we look if we look at what is it that consumers value? Um, they want a robust product. They want phenomenal customer support, and they want um, they want counterparties that care, that keep them at the center of everything. And that's what we stand for. So I, I'm not too worried. Let's say if somebody has hundred times the kind of capital that we do, because um, I look at our metrics internally every day. I look at the fundamental uh, fundamentals of the business. I look at the feedback we receive. Uh, from consumers who have tried the 
uh, who who gone around and tried multiple products, and uh, I can sleep very well at night. All right, confident, confident answer. Uh, the uh, kind of the nature of y'all's growth geographically and how you're thinking about that. So uh, you know, you're you're based out of India. You have a large portion of your customer base in Southeast Asia and Europe, uh, in the U.S. Can you talk a little bit about the differences you see in consumer behavior in those areas and maybe kind of, I guess, how, you, how you're thinking about kind of the growth of your customers in different regions? Do you see it as kind of a, you know, one thing or do you segment it out like that in terms of what do these customers in, uh, you know, Malaysia want versus Germany and, and that type of thing? Um, so behavior is most definitely um, not the same from mm-hmm. uh, if we look at the way people work with in uh, different pockets of Southeast Asia versus um, the West. Uh, People are uh, not as um, trading focused. Surprisingly, at least the people who come to our platform, they are uh, fund managers. They are people who are looking looking to um, stay risk off on their local currency. Uh, They're looking at uh, an uncorrelated asset class Mm -hmm. and um, um, they're they're looking at the best possible financial outcome for their portfolio. Um, And, and I think if you have exposure in crypto, it makes, uh, and, and and you understand that there are risks to self custody uh, and there are risks to uh, trusting a counterparty with this as well. Uh, If you can figure the balance for which that works for you, um, we drive people's financial incentive very well. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and what we're about is, is ensuring that if somebody decides to uh, bank with crypto, it's, it pans out to be the best financial decision they've ever made. Uh, mm. uh, it pans out to be uh, something that bites them as frequently as possible. And, and, and uh, I think if we can achieve that, uh, we're achieving that with the, with the limited user base that we have given that we are still uh, pretty small, both from a team standpoint and our user base. Um, we're able to can manage you talk that about pretty the, well. Can you talk, give me more, it's okay if you can, but can you give me more detail about the size of your user base, deposits, uh, maybe like sizing of, of uh, you know, most of your customers? Can, can you share any more detail on those things now? Yeah, we have about 70,000 signed up users. Um, we have an average deposit value offered if a user has deposited over time, over time. Um, okay, maybe talking about these numbers is a little too early, but um, what I can share, share is our one-year retention rate is in the range of about 67%, which is if somebody tries our platform today, ends up depositing mm-hmm. some capital, um, they there's a 70% chance that they use us uh, at the end of one year. Additionally, if uh, what we've also seen is we have a negative churn in terms of capital brought in. So people try our platform with $100 or a couple of hundred dollars. And over the span of six months, they increase their exposure to the platform significantly because of uh, their experience. They see that they get paid out very regularly. And um, so the average deposit value per deposited user tends to transition from about a couple hundred dollars to uh, I think the average at the moment is in the range of about $6,500 per deposited user. Interesting. But I think it's a little early, a little early for us to talk absolute numbers. I hope that's fine. Sure, sure. And then, is the size of kind of the customer, those customers, 
uh, you know, between the West and, and Southeast Asia? Is there a difference there? Like if it's, you know, ends up being 6,000 bucks and, you know, X country, you're seeing, you know, it being smaller amounts in other countries or is it pretty uh, across the board similar? So I think it's, it's pretty proportional to average household income. Um, so mm-hmm. if, if uh, a country like India has a, has a lower household income, you'll also find that the average deposit value won't be in the range of about 6,000, but it would be in the range of maybe 2,500 or 3,000. It's directly proportional to the average household income. Yeah, interesting. And then uh, what's, what does your marketing look like? So you're, you're growing kind of across the world. You know, I think most of the companies that have uh, kind of targeted your use case are like, hey, we're going to do the US first, or we're going to do these, you know, we're going to do uh, the UK first, or whatever it is. That's a pretty big task to say, hey, we're going to be a global company from day one. What is the marketing kind of, how are you thinking about marketing and, and entering these different countries? So we look at growth as a function of a very high rate of retention plus um, a, a virality rate of some shape and form. So, and, and we achieve the virality rate by delighting consumers. We haven't spent a single dollar on marketing since our launch. Interesting. And uh, um, what we've seen is if we, can, if we can do right by the consumer, they tend to talk about our product quite a bit. And mm-hmm. when, when um, and, and the crypto community is pretty close knit, right? I mean, if, uh, if you find a product that you absolutely love, it's very likely that you would tell um, a friend of yours about the platform and, and possibly get their feedback on it, see whether, you, you know, you're taking a risk that you would have otherwise not scoped out and the like. So um, organic discovery has been something that's been working exceptionally well. We tried a referral product. Uh, we tried a bunch of things. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it was very, very insignificant to uh, the word of mouth uh, growth that we actually, the, that we got. And, and, and the, the primary focus has been speaking to the consumers very closely and ensuring that they're happy. If they're not, uh, um, speak to them. Uh, I get on calls um, and, and, and do right by them. That's, that's, and, and if we can consistently do this over um, two years, which is what we're doing, I think, uh, and with very limited capital, I see only us moving only one, in one direction. Mm. All right. Uh, and you're, you're uh, kind of the uh, multi-tool player over there doing a lot of that yourself, which is, which I'm sure you're ready to build that team up. Is the uh, kind of, once you raise, once you kind of announce and, and close this round is how are you thinking about the growth of your team and uh, kind of what does that enable you to do? What are you excited about uh, for that? So, Coming back to the two equations that work for us, we, we've spotted gaps and opportunities for what we need to do uh, to get to where we want to be one year from now, both from a traction and a product standpoint. And we, we see the bar. Um, so every, every dollar that we end up raising is going to go into improving uh, the experience in some shape or form. Um, that directly translates to product being better. So we're going to be hiring for technology that we don't believe we need to be spending capital on branding. We believe word of mouth is far more uh, powerful than, than any banner ad on any popular platform. Um, and, and the next thing that we can do to delight and create value for the consumer is operate um, with the banking networks in, in the jurisdictions that we're seeing traction. To do mm-hmm. that, that, that may require local licensing, which is where uh, a significant portion, portion of our capital is going to go into sure. as well. 
So these are gonna, this this is going to amount to at least eighty percent of our uh, current round. Got it. Makes sense. And it, it always uh, makes you cringe a little bit to see a lot of going to the the lawyers and the regulatory side of things, but uh, definitely necessary to lay that foundation in the right way. Uh, the uh, I mean, this is all interesting. I, I didn't know a ton about y'all before uh, before talking to you, so I'm learning learning a lot here. Uh, the um, I urge you to try the platform. You're going to be positively surprised. If you've tried the competition, I guarantee you, you're going to be positively surprised. I like it. What, what, what's the, what are y'all uh, returning on for BTC right now? 7.23%. 7.23. That would be the best out there. Is there a, is there a min max? Is there a max, I guess, for that? No. No max. Really? Okay. Um, cool. Uh, so, so, and then you have these APIs that uh, are already kind of syncing up with different exchanges and other platforms. Um, can you talk a little bit more about the, you, you kind of mentioned it, the, the payment side. So the, the three parts of what you see is banking and, and how you're, you're uh, kind of implementing some of these things. Uh, you have the custody side. Uh, I saw, by the way, that uh, you may have a partnership with, with uh, BitGo on the custody side. Is that is that the case? Yeah. Cool. Uh, and then the um, kind of lending financing side on the payment side again. Uh, I mean, that's a pretty intricate thing to be working on in a lot of these different markets. I guess that's part of the kind of regulatory stuff that you're going to be looking at. Uh, how do you how do you think about kind of go go into a little more detail about how you think the future of payments in crypto uh, looks. And I, I appreciate your perspective of first kind of, uh, you know, saying, Hey, from the outset, there's the, uh, risk reward of, you know, a, a third party custodying your Bitcoin, uh, and being transparent about that. I think a lot of, uh, companies kind of in, in y'all's shoes, sugarcoat that side of it a little bit. Um, and you, you know, seem uh, kind of ideologically, you think about Bitcoin, you, you think about it kind of from a Bitcoin first perspective, uh, which is refreshing. Um, and I think that's probably kind of how you got into this in the first place is, is kind of more on the uh, ideological side, which is, uh, I think, uh, you know, a good sign of um, kind of long-term staying power uh, and working through kind of some of these cycles. What do you, what do, how do you look at the kind of future of Bitcoin crypto payments? And do you see kind of traction on that anywhere in particular? Uh, kind of regionally, what, what are you seeing there? So I think um, the biggest barrier around payments with crypto is, is not um, scalability of the underlying blockchains, primarily because I think some of the best minds are working on this. Um, we're going to find very solid and innovative solutions far, far quicker than we, uh, we, we currently uh, give credit for. Um, mm -hmm. So I don't think that's the biggest bottleneck for payments. I think the bigger bottleneck is um, around com complexities with um, it being legal tender across different jurisdictions. So mm -hmm. most, most countries may regulate it as an alternate asset or a commodity. And the fact is, um, if there is a difference in the purchase and settlement price, you are incurring a capital gains uh, liability on that. And um, um, it, it, that, that worries me more than technology scalability. Um, mm -hmm. And, and um, the way we 
we see to solve that is if if we just do this credit in a credit first manner where settlement happens later and it's done in the form of a line of credit you mitigate that that's why we started um with the first a static loan uh, against let's say a, a crypto holding and then over time when we enable payments it's going to be payments in the form of a line of credit and possibly post a settlement post that and mm-hmm. that that is also very tax favorable um mm. and and of course this is very challenging to do uh, from a compliance standpoint which is why there's such a significant portion of our fund is going to be devoted to that um and 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 i think if we can do this with very deep in, uh, relationships with the regulators and the banking infrastructure across the world uh, for the people who care about crypto it's going to be phenomenal now expecting everybody to care about crypto care about custody managing their private key and the like i think is unrealistic um mm-hmm. uh, i think where crypto adoption is it's still at the the entrepreneur slash um, extreme early adopter stage you're not going to see uh, i don't even think we're still at the early majority stage so it it needs to get a far more seamless uh from a payment standpoint for this to be truly an instrument uh that ends up capturing some part of the market some part of the settlement market and um that's going to happen in my perspective um sure you have to be legally compliant that's how you're going to do this um and and it has to also be significantly interoperable um it cannot it cannot have the network effect dependencies that we have today so for example uh if you and i both don't have a bitcoin wallet settlement with bitcoin is is quite challenging uh, assuming let's say we're we're ba- we're trying to bank given that i sit out of india and you sit out of the us uh, mm-hmm. um breaking that dependency is going to drive payments and if we uh, the way we're looking at breaking that is integrating with existing networks of distribution it's all about networks of distribution at the end venmo has mm-hmm. a phenomenal uh, network effect product so does cash app uh paytm has that in india and there are mm. different uh, wechat and alipay have that in in china and hong kong so what for the people who care about banking with crypto um working backwards from to delight that user making payments into these interoperable networks not only easy but far easier than let's say settling with your bank account is what is going to drive um payments with these instruments if it's not raising the bar from a ux standpoint uh, more often than not people are going to settle for the easier option and, and and that's the opportunity that i see us capturing where we're going to make it extremely easy to bank with bitcoin yeah. far better than far better than how you would have done it with a bank account so that's what we're going to do all right very very uh, interesting way of thinking about it and uh branding it i think it makes a lot of sense um uh like uh, back to kind of bigger picture you've touched on kind of points of this uh throughout the talk but uh maybe kind of uh to to uh just kind of sync it all together at the end here kind of your your vision of uh kind of a, a full suite financial services company or whatever you see bank of holders being in 5 years uh what what's kind of your your 5 year vision i guess for where this ta- where this goes we're going to be the most customer centric bank that's ever existed and working backwards from that vision we believe crypto is going to be at the front and center of that because it's the most customer centric instrument that's ever existed mm-hmm. um 
integrations with banking networks need to happen. Uh, us as the custodian and, and counterparty to making this seamless requires us to own uh, banking licenses across different jurisdictions. So I hope in about five years time, we're going to be a licensed bank in the jurisdiction that we're bullish about, which is Singapore, one jurisdiction in the EU and possibly the US as well. So we're going to be vying for that national charter in these jurisdictions. All right. Love it. What's, what's the, you said one jurisdiction in the EU. What does that, what does that mean exactly? So the passporting cap capability of the EU uh, is such that if you have a banking license in one jurisdiction, you have the mm -hmm. capability to service the entire market. And is the ease be... of doing that uh, different in different in different countries, actually, even though it's a blanket uh, kind of blanket access? Absolutely. Is there, is there a difference in terms of, hey, it's oh, easier yeah. to do this in Italy than Germany, things like that? Yeah. So there are jurisdictions, uh, primarily smaller economy jurisdictions that have it easier. But mm -hmm. I don't think the easy way is the right way. I think working with the most reputable um, regulators is what's going to make us valuable over a, a 10 year horizon. So we're possibly going to be registering. Uh, we're not going to work backwards from which jurisdiction is easy to work with, but rather, which is the pe best banking jurisdiction? Is that the UK? If, if that is the UK, then we're possibly going to register out of that. Is that Bafin in Germany? If that is, we're going to register out of that. We're not working backwards from which is easier. If we were, we would be sitting out of one of the much smaller jurisdictions uh, owning a crypto custody license because it costs sure. close to nothing to get that. And, and, and I don't think that's defensible over a 10 or 15 year horizon. I think doing it right with the regulators, keeping um, customer centricity at the front uh, of everything and creating customer delight uh, is what's going to make us valuable over a 10 or 15 year horizon. Customer delight. It's a good tagline. And then what, what is uh, getting that, that uh, license in Singapore give you in terms of access to Southeast Asia? Is it, uh, is, there, is there any kind of blanket benefit there? Oh, yeah. So we can do exactly what we want to do uh, for the world, which is we can issue accounts. We can do international remittances, both with crypto and fiat. We can, we, we can be our own custodian if we like. Um, we can do um, a, a bunch of things. We can issue our own card, uh, directly work with uh, a distribution network like Visa or MasterCard. So we're, we're going for the whole suite. Just one category below a banking license. We're applying for everything else. Got it. Very interesting. You got, you got your uh, hands full. Work it out. And then uh, an actual last question, uh, a recommendation. So uh, it can be Singapore, I spent some time there, Bangalore, uh, where you know, most of your team is or where your family currently is now in, in COVID-19 uh, times. One recommendation can be a place to eat, uh, you know, thing to see, uh, book to read. Leave uh, the listeners with a recommendation. Um, I think there's this exceptional book by Ben Horowitz called The Hard Thing About Hard Things. And it talks about, and this is very um, very relevant for someone who's starting an entrepreneur's journey to do right, um, to not take short-term trade-offs. Short-term trade-offs may be easy to do. And um, doing the hard thing can, can be very, can be not beneficial at all for the short term. It could be uh, extremely inconvenient, but these things really add up. And you are at the end, um, you, are what you, you are your reputation. You are what you stand for. And uh, if, if, you, if you do this with a significant amount of integrity 
Uh, people can see that. And that's infectious. You attract the best people around you. You associate with the best investors. You get the highest um, quality users. You get uh, these things compound. And, and, and it's extremely well explained on how to, how to build a company the right way in, in that book. Yeah, this is a great book. It's uh, really kind of shows the, uh, I mean, it's in the title. The, the struggles associated with that commitment to integrity and doing things the right way too. Uh, all right, man. Uh, great to talk to you. Thanks for your time. And uh, we'll need to check in again uh, once you've uh, kind of closed some of these things that you've hinted at. <laughs> Absolutely. Thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you. Reminder, all of the content in this episode is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any such information or other material as legal, tax, investment, financial, or other advice. Nothing contained in this presentation constitutes solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer by BTC Media, the Let's Talk Bitcoin Podcast Network, or any third-party service provider to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments.